the Mac Observers, Mac Geek Gab number 179 for Tuesday, December 2nd, 2008. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observers, Mac Geek Gab. That was Pilot Pete. I'm Dave Hamilton. He's John Braun, and you are our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. John, if this show makes it, uh, no, I I mean, like if this if this recording makes it, will it be the first time that a second take has succeeded? Uh, It it, very well possible, right? I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to. We've had multi multi take shows, but uh, Dave, it's been so long. It's been it, it, days, even. It's been days, and actually, yes, yeah, some people have commented saying we're kind of off our schedule, but we gave you a bonus podcast. So yeah, we thought yeah. we let it slip day, and just so we could let some questions come in. I mean, uh, I was amazed. So here, here's the thing. So uh, Stephen, not Stephen. I'll, I'll take a minute first and talk about something we've been doing here at the Mac Observer for about the last two months, and that is migrating uh, the back end of, of what publishes the Mac Observer to a whole new publishing system. The publishing system that existed previously was designed by me uh, initially. And Lovingly I, handcrafted. Handcrafted. It was part. It was the first thing I ever wrote in PHP back in December of 1999. Um, I, I wrote the core of, of what became our publishing system up until Sunday morning when uh, Stephen Swift has been working tirelessly for the last two months, recoding all of TMO into Expression Engine. And uh, by and large, readers won't notice a whole lot of difference at the outset. That was by design. Uh, we kind of wanted to get the back end migrated over, but this will allow us to develop a whole lot more quickly because, of course, when you have your own hand rolled system, all changes and upgrades and features must also be hand rolled with Expression Engine or, you know, some uh, canned CMS uh, content management system. That is, you can build on the work of other people and Expression Engine sort of affords us the best of both worlds because we can still do a lot of hand rolling and then also, um, yep. you know, take advantage. So, well. So that, I concur, but as a software type of guy, don't reinvent the wheel, man. If, right. if there's something out there and it there, sounds like, yeah, you finally... There was you know, no wheel in 1999. You must you must remember, <laughs> we, we invented the wheel because it didn't You invented exist. your wheel because, yeah, no, nobody really had a decent uh, CMS. There, for, there was one. It was from a company called yeah. Vignette, which at the time also happened to be in Austin, Texas. I went and met with them. They wanted $100,000 to use something that was basically WordPress. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was like, uh, yeah, you know, even if we could afford it, we wouldn't spend that money. And you guys aren't even in the ballpark. I mean, you're many orders yeah. of magnitude off right from from where this needs to be for a company the size of ours. But anyway, yeah. uh, so so we, we lived with it. And, and I wasn't the only one that developed our CMS over the years. Stephen actually wrote bits and pieces of it. And, and we had uh, David Phelan uh, in the beginning, about in the early 2000, wrote some of it. But anyway, we've migrated yep. away from that. No, it looks good. And, uh, I, I got to say, you know, as I drove away, I saw you, you know, pulling out the uh, ball and chain and the whip for, right. uh, you know, to prepare Stephen for uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> some concentrated development work. That's right. You know, of course, TMO does not treat its workers badly. No, I can no, attest no. to that. No, it's it, treated it, quite well. We have the towers. We have the uh, uh, yeah. Anyways, 
But anyway, that's why Steven slipped out. So I wanted to say that. I also wanted to say that we one thing we worked very, very hard on was making sure that the podcast RSS did not get screwed up or even confused in the interim. And I think we succeeded there. But of course, if you see anything odd, let us know. That's why Steven's name slipped out. What I was going to say was that Michael did not have the opportunity over the weekend. So we recorded our last show, 178, on Friday. Um, it was yesterday afternoon that I finally realized that Michael hadn't even noticed that we did a show because he had kind of unplugged from the grid for the weekend, which is never a bad thing to do. I just didn't realize he had done it. So uh, instead of having him convert the AAC uh, and, and then take you know even more time to, to get it to you folks, uh, I just rolled the MP3 into the AAC feed, which was a good thing to do because it actually found another little uh, oversight in our migration that, that we went and patched up. But all this leads to me saying... I was amazed at the number of comments we got specifically with regards to show number 178, which we recorded only, what, four days ago mm-hmm. and basically rolled to the masses, you know, maybe 30 hours ago, certainly about 24 hours uh, before we were able to. Uh, I was I started prepping it. So it just it really amazed me that. Uh, all the comments we got, you know, in that in that concentrated period of time, it's fantastic. That said, we have a huge show to go through here. I'm sure I, I, we won't have time to go through mm-hmm. it all. Well, I promise we on Twitter, we we may peg the geek meter here. We have some stuff that's going to really dive deep, I think, if we if we have the time. All so, right. Uh, well, let's uh, if we, and of course, Pilot Pete's here. We were doing a, a an informal survey on Friday. I was looking at the times of the shows and I could tell you which ones Pete was sitting here for and which ones he was not because they all were about 10 minutes longer because Pete pushes us to uh, to keep going. <laughs> you will cover every question. <laughs> yeah. Can you cut off mic three? <clears throat> you got it. All right. So Max writes. I run. Hey, wait a minute. I'm in mic three. I can't cut me off, John. <laughs> nice knowing you, Dave. <laughs> Thanks. Is he two or... How are you doing, John? He's, I don't even know what I am. He's two and you're four and there's... <laughs> I'm four? It's a, it's a very... It Who's was a very arbitrary... Nobody's in one. You never put anybody in, in my channel number one because it always breaks. What? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Go, anyway, Max. Max writes, I run a local IT business. One of my customers recently got a time capsule. Since they already had an existing router, I decided to configure the time capsule as a wireless access point only with no router functions enabled. But I couldn't find a way to disable DHCP as my customer or my customer's router is already doing that job. Apple support was no help there. Is there a special firmware or something I need to install? Okay, so this is exactly how I have my time capsule set up for exactly the same reason, Max. And I'm shocked that. Apple's support wasn't able to help. They, yeah. they, they either didn't understand the product or didn't understand the question because uh, what you do is you go into airport utility, you select your time capsule and you go into setup and then click on the internet uh, globe at the top of the uh, screen there. And in the connection sharing, which should be at the bottom of the internet connection tab, you want to leave, you want to set that to off Bridge mode and bridge mode is in parentheses. What that does is it tells the router don't don't be smart about anything. Don't try to don't be a router. Essentially, just be a bridge. And then and I know we want to talk more about bridge mode while we're in the settings mode here. I just want to say 
You do want to leave DHCP on for the configure IPv4, which is the second line at the top. And the reason for that is you want the router to get its own IP address via DHCP. Um, or you could or you could set it to manual or statically assign it uh, however you want. But but chances are you'll want it to get its uh, own address from your DHCP server, but not provide its D, its own DHCP services. And that's where connection sharing uh, makes that change. So I, I know you had you had some stuff to talk about with bridge mode. So now let, let's do well, that. A, l- a little bit. But I, I'd say bridge mode just to define what that means. A bridge is really uh, I would say, uh, you know, let me know what you think, but but it's a virtual cable connection. It, yeah. It's very close to you plugging a cable in, in that, as you stated before, you're not assigning addresses, you're not routing traffic from here to there. You're just kind of transparent. You're just letting everything kind of flow by. It, it, it's like a low intelligence mode. It's, it's really not doing any work, nor should it, if you have, as pointed out, another device on the network that's already doing the routing and the right. DHCP. So I forget at what TCP or ISO level it's at, if it's, you know, level one or two, but it's, again, it, it's pretty much, you know, like a slave mode. I'm just going to sit here and just watch the traffic flow by and not do anything smart. Right. That's the right. The problem is if you have multiple machines on the same network trying to do the same thing, like DHCP or routing, that just leads to disaster. Yeah. Well, you what you'll wind up with is a, a double routed network and, and that can be very, very confusing, especially if you're trying to do stuff like, you know, iChat or Skype or BitTorrent or, or anything where your computer is trying to receive unsolicited packets from the outside world. Uh, it, it can be very difficult if you've got, you know, a double double router, double bridge set up. So, yeah, and a lot of times uh, a lot of uh, ISPs, like in my case, they provide a cable modem, but in a lot of cases, some ISPs provide a router, which in that case, you'd almost certainly want any other device, like an Apple device, like a time capsule, to be in the bridge mode so it doesn't confuse the other device that's doing what it should. Right. That's right. And yeah, you know, Pilot Pete asked, so what's the point of this? Well, obviously with this, the point is to add the time capsule, but he's also adding an 802. potentially an 802.11n uh, mm-hmm. router, and, and so that, that gives you... 802.11n access point, so that gives you higher speed wireless. But it can also add Ethernet ports, though there's cheaper ways of, of adding Ethernet ports mm. versus buying, you know, another router with a hard drive built in. So, Yeah, and I know I a little mini tangent, then we'll move on. But All right. I, I think I was telling you the other, other day, Dave, I thought my, my uh, laptop was acting up because um, I wasn't getting an Ethernet connection when I hooked my time capsule. Oh. As it turns out, if, if you have a network port in the network control panel, you have to apply changes for it to kind of kick in. My expectation was if I highlighted it and activated it, it would see the wire. And, and as it turned out, I think eventually the, the solution was I had to apply the settings. Then it saw the yeah. uh, Ethernet connection. Because I looked, the, the time capsule does have a little you know blinky light when it sees electrical activity and i was not seeing that and i'm like what is wrong here so i I didn't fully go through the whole you know reconfiguration of my machine because i have different location profiles i have wireless and wired but i had not you know fully engaged it so just ever run across a situation where you think your ethernet port is blown you know make sure you apply the settings perhaps reboot the machine into the you know uh configuration and all as well, because I was like, oh, man, I don't want to send this back. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. Because yeah. especially, you know, as of late, I've had to do some uh, local backups, like when my time capsule gets messed up. 
And it's much nicer to do a re-image on a wired connection than a wireless. Absolutely. Yeah, regardless of how fast that wired wireless connection is, wired is almost always faster. And we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. Okay, Adam. Adam. Adam writes, I have a question about my Power Mac G4 that has never given me problems before. Sometimes when I turn it on, it takes about a minute and a half to start up when it usually takes half that. And then when it starts up, eventually my CPU is pegged at 100%. It eventually goes back down to normal, but it's a pain to wait for everything to load when I know it can go much faster. And the process that is causing this process, the process that is causing this situation is called Kext Cache or K-E-X-T-C-A-C-H-E. If you could please tell me what this is and what it might be causing, what might be causing it, it would be greatly appreciated. I'm running on a Power Mac G4 digital audio, 466 megahertz. Yes, it's old, but I'm getting a MacBook Pro in June running 10.4.11. John. Well, I'll start here by saying, um, you know, so what is KE? What the heck is a KEXT? And, and I'm pretty sure that's a kernel extension. There you go. And likewise, you're creating a kernel extension cache. Now, what are kernel extensions? There are a few ways you could find out. One is if you go to system, library, extensions, you will see a whole bunch of files with surprise, a .kext extension. Um, the other way you can see them, which is probably a little bit nicer, is you go to system info from the Apple menu. Yep. Um, software extensions you will also see these files and if you look at them in general they are device specific things like i see here it's uh you know cpu voltage flash and vram so so i was saying in general these are things that uh, offer links to hardware and and do a lot of other things but but you know just a gross generalization now when you add something new it should recreate oh and i'm sorry there's another part of this is if you look in your system slash library folder, you will see a file called extensions.mkext. That is at least, I don't know if that fully represents all the, uh, uh, all the cache files, but I think that's the end result of, of this uh, operation, which in essence caches all that stuff so it doesn't have to poke through each individual file. It goes to the cache file instead when the OS needs to access this. Um, I'll, I'll offer one suggestion and then hand it to you, Dave, but one is you may want to womp that file because it may be screwed up or have the wrong permissions or who the heck knows. So you may want to whack that file and see if things get better. But there are a few other things you could do. And uh, Dave? Yeah. So, no, I, I, I agree with you. If that file is being rebuilt for no apparent reason, i.e. you haven't installed something new that would have either added, removed, or made changes to a kernel extension, then you probably have something else going on. Now, uh, you, you can get rid of the, the cache file. And I believe you're right, John. I think that's the only one. But I know that Onyx and Cocktail and probably Mac Janitor and, and several others will wipe that cache file out in in their kind of the, in their process of wiping out all their other cache files. And that may not be a bad thing to do here for you, Adam, because it, at least that way, you know, you're wiping things out and, and perhaps Whatever it is that's causing that to be triggered to to run all the time will uh, will you know will be wiped out and then it'll run one more time and then you're good to go until you change it again. Um, if it keeps getting wiped out, then I actually I'd start looking at you know is there some hard drive corruption or, or something like that running disk utility or booting to single user mode and running FSCK something uh, it, something's causing this because it's not normal that it would 
it would need to rebuild constantly unless of course you're going and removing or changing files in the uh in the system extensions folder yeah or if you're a you know software installation monster and you keep installing new stuff that puts a new file in in the extensions then this will happen as it as it should so there are few um, pieces of software that need to install kernel extensions i mean i i can think uh, i'll go look on this machine now but i i, I think i have one and uh so I, I it's not the kind of thing that should should be changing all the time yeah i uh, mostly from what i see most of these files are related to hardware devices some may not be but uh, for the most part if you install a new piece of hardware uh, a kernel extension may be installed um now, uh, the only other thing I'd mention is that, you know, restarting the machine, and it pains me when this happens, but it typically does take, even with the fastest Macs, or, or not so fast, um, it, it sometimes may take a couple of minutes from when you see the desktop until everything is settled down and loaded until you can use the system. So uh, uh, I would state that on initial boot up, you know, not after, after you sleep, of course, but on initial boot up, you may have to wait a couple of minutes. Uh, you know, it, it still does bother me when that happens, you know, that it I was, think I can it was bothering you tonight that it was happening, John. Well, yeah, well in this case, what was happening is all of a sudden my G five decided to index my time cap, my time machine drive. I'm sorry. Cause I have an internal drive on my G five. And all of a sudden I, I noticed in the upper right hand corner spotlight was indexing. And I'm like, what are you indexing? And it's like, I'm indexing your, your time machine drive. I'm like, Please don't do that. And I even had it excluded. I have no idea why it was doing it. I explicitly told it, don't do this. So, yeah, and that was chomping a lot of processor and disk, uh, which I see with my favorite and your favorite and Pete's favorite. And I think every savvy Mac user's favorite, menu meters, told me this. How could we live without it? Imagine, I mean, it, it, can you imagine having to live without menu meters? I, I can't to be honest with you. No, because when I see the hard drive or the processor pegged, I know there's something I should probably check right? out. And, and otherwise and, you wouldn't know. All right. Uh, moving along, Joseph writes, recently I've had occasion to be at two different hotels. At one of them, I paid for access and was able to freely send and receive email using a Mac OS 10 mail with everything set up. Like I have it at home. Essentially my ISP is GoDaddy, So I use their email service using pop three protocol and need their SMTP server to get my email out at a different hotel on a different trip. I also paid for access and I was able to receive email without problem, but never could get an email out using Mac OS 10 mail. For a couple of emails I had to get out, I copied the message to the web-based email browser from GoDaddy and was able to send some mail. Is the difference here a blocked port 25? Are there alternate ports that sometime I could try? Should I invest in a VPN service? And would such a service then, could I, could I uh, use my client to deal with my mail? Uh, all right, we'll, we'll leave the question there. So uh, the answer is... Yes, there are alternate ports. Many places will block port 25, which is the standard port for sending out mail. The reason they will block it is is one of two things. One is that they want you to use their mail server, which in this case, the hotel probably doesn't. Sometimes ISPs will do that. But really, the big reason is spam. If you have a virus on your machine, now, usually this is a Windows machine, though perhaps we need to start talking about Mac viruses at some point here, John. But but for <laughs> this, uh, it, you know, if you've got a virus or a Trojan or or some sort of malware on your on your machine that's sending out email, it's going to do it through port 25. And 
uh, it's going to try and blast email out to the world and, and may or may not I think have that's a Sometimes that's a zombie, I think they call it. All right. Which uh, somebody remotely invoked. Uh-oh. It sounds like John's Skype connection went that, away. Yes, spam on port 25. Go all on. right. And he's back all, all very fast because Skype caught you up. Uh, yeah. So so you you it, port 25 is blocked for good reason. Many times it will be blocked from your home network. In fact, uh, Comcast's default new software for their cable modems will block port 25 going outbound. Not everybody has this software, but but it's definitely a common thing and becoming even more common. So it'll block port 25 to everything but Comcast mail server. And again, it's for this reason. It, it, it tightens that down. So is there an alternate port? Yes, there is port 587. And what that does is it accepts mail for outbound mail, not inbound. Typically, mm-hmm. it may be set up to, to, to accept inbound mail, but but. By and large, it is built for outbound mail, i.e. you want to send mail out from your computer via a mail server to the rest of the world. You're not um, another mail server talking and sending mail in. That's what port 25 is for. 587 is for outbound mail. Uh, That's regular SMTP. Then you could use secure SMTP. So you enable that little SSL checkbox and you do that on port 465, which is Typically standard, as soon as you check that that SSL checkbox, it's going to use port 465. So I would actually go the whole nine yards and turn on SSL for both incoming and outgoing mail. And then you shouldn't have any problem no matter where you are. But uh, but if for whatever reason, if your your ISP doesn't accept SSL uh, for SMTP, then by all means, set it to 587. It should accept that. That is an uh, there's an RFP out there for that. That is a, a, a standard now. So so that. In theory, should work. Do you have anything to add to that, John? Excellent. Well, well, did uh, Pete have? A, I think Pete had a tidbit, and then I have a closing, uh, you know, peg the geek meter kind of suggestion. Tidbit, Pete. Uh, I was just asking. You were talking about zombies, and I I put in the question: Is that the same as a botnet? Essentially, uh, I, uh, it could could be. Sort of. Yeah, yeah, could be okay. the same. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean it, I'm I'm thinking in, in one case it's a you know virus whose sole purpose is to blast out email, but I guess yeah, a, a zombie. I don't know. Yeah, but we'll, we'll look it up. Yeah, the terms are kind of fuzzy sometimes, but right. Um, the, the, so the one thing I had to offer here, and and again, I think this may peg the geek meter a bit. Well, you know, a lot of the 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 you know firewalls will block certain ports, like like we're talking here TCP or is it UDP? I think it's TCP port twenty five. Right. It is TCP. Yes. You know, if you're in a real uh, desperate situation, there's a piece of software that I found uh, works on OS 10, though. This is, I think, you know, pretty experimental, but it's called ping tunnel. What does ping tunnel do? You ask. What What does ping tunnel do? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, So as you probably know, there is a lower level protocol below TCP that has a different purpose called ICMP. And probably the most famous user of ICMP is the ping command. When you ping a computer, it's sending a lower level, not TCP, not UDP packet, but an ICMP packet saying, hey, you there? And it's like, yeah, I'm here. Well, someone figured out that these type of packets, which are in a lot of cases not blocked like TCP or UDP ports, 
because it's more for utility purpose, ICMP, like pinging and, and network health and things like that. But someone figured out you can carry a small payload on ICMP packets. So somebody came out with something called Ping Tunnel. We'll link to it. But it's a utility that will attempt to create a TCP tunnel through ICMP. It, it may not be quick. It may not be efficient. But hey, if you're in a rough spot and you really need to get out, and I don't know if you speculated on some other potential uses of this, Dave, but to me, it's just a darn cool way of taking the protocols and just building on them and doing something unexpected for good or for evil. All right. So you you, you hung the, the uh, you, you set up the pins. I'll knock them down. Uh, so, yes, I, I did speculate on something here. Many times what happens when you are on. That's the right way to say this. Um, first, I'll state, don't get caught. Uh, second, I'll state, <laughs> we don't necessarily condone any, any activity for which you may or may not get caught. Uh, but either way, we, we suggest you don't get caught. Uh, so now there are many situations where you may get an IP address from a router, uh, Joseph in a hotel, and you might have that IP address might need to be authenticated in order for certain types of traffic to pass across it. Now, it's possible that ping traffic will pass across the router from any IP address no matter what, uh, whereas... Otherwise, you may need uh, additional credentials, uh, i.e. you have to pay your money, and then you might be able to get out. Now, I've actually never tried this. I had never, I really, and I, I'm honest here, folks, I had never even heard of this ping tunnel thing, uh, at least not in this sense. But uh, but as John was explaining it, it kind of hit me that, uh, you know, there might be a beat the system uh, thing here. I Again, I don't condone it. Uh, at least I don't need more. And I think that's that's about enough of uh, of that particular subject. Don't you think, John? Uh, I think the Pete's, lawyers, Pete's are, Pete's the lawyers are, are pleased with with what you said. They all should you, be. All you pilots out there, don't do it. OK, there you go. That's right. <laughs> I know so, how cheap we are. <laughs> the bottom line is, if you get caught, it's not our fault. Don't look at us. That's right. All yeah, right. But, uh, uh, Christopher. No. First, our oh. first sponsor oh. is oh, Smile right. on My Mac. And uh, this week, we're talking about Disc Label. Now, Disc Label allows you to create your own CD or DVD labels, jewel case inserts, DVD case inserts, you know, and and they've got a ton of templates built in. So you've got something you can start with or you can design from scratch or you can kind of mix and match and, and sort of create your own your own concoction. It'll uh, suck track information in from iTunes or photos in from iPhoto. So you can really customize this to what you've got. It is the holiday season, right? So, you know, what you can do is is make uh, go into iDVD, right? Create a cool movie. Of, of all your pictures and maybe some movies, use some Ken Burns effects, because I know, you know, Apple loves to, to show us those. And as Mac uh -huh. users, we, we salivate now when we see that sort of thing. It's a Pavlovian response. And uh, and so you've got this cool DVD that you've done with all this drooling and everything. And it's nice. But uh, but you want to create a, a, a cool looking label for the. For the box, because you're going to send this and somebody's going to unwrap it. And you don't just want them unwrapping some, you know. Yeah, uh, with a black marker. Right. I mean, come on, you, you might as well do it right. That's right. And so <laughs> and so disc label allows you to do that. Uh, it supports almost all labels on any printer, but it'll also 
it'll also support those direct to CD printers, the Lightscribe and the Dymo Disc Painter. Uh, so definitely check it out. There is a screencast by our friend Don McAllister that uh, he did for Smile on My Mac available at their site. So it totally will walk you through the whole process of doing this as if it wasn't easy enough to begin with. Don actually, uh, you know, he takes mm. something that's easy and 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 shows you all the nooks and crannies. So yeah. so go check it out. Disc label. It's thirty nine ninety five. But of course, you can get a free trial and uh, and you can download it from Smile on My Mac dot com. Cool. So like. Avery and the the other guys make make these labels. You Absolutely, just, yeah. yeah. So cool. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I may try it this season. See, there you go. It is the season. All right. Okay. Uh, so off. I jumped the gun there. I'm sorry, Christopher. Christopher, here he goes. Hey guys, this is Christopher with MacWorks in Minneapolis. I was just listening to show number one seventy eight, and the gentleman uh, was talking about the uh, network drive over gigabit Ethernet, and I was wondering if he might have that connected to a network switch or a network hub or if it's going direct. And also, that raises another question for me, reminded me of a question um, that I've always had. And Could you explain what the difference is between the full duplex and half duplex um, and whatever the other options might be there in the uh, Ethernet interface options? Um, you can yeah, you guys do a great show and I uh, Hope to hear my question. All right. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure he was driving a tractor there, John. What do you think? I think it was on a train. Oh, could have been. Subway or something. Been. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, thank you. Thank you very much for the comment, Christopher. And thanks for the uh, for the suggestion there. Uh, as far as full duplex versus half duplex in I, I'll I'll sort of abstract this out. And when you're talking about anything, full duplex means Data can pass in two directions at once. So uh, if if I'm talking to John, he can then talk to me at the same time. That is a full duplex conversation. So think of a telephone as full duplex and old style speaker phones where you're doing only one direction at a time as half duplex. So I've got to talk and then, you know, I, and then when I'm finished, I have to wait. And then now I'm going to listen to. uh to John talk, and that would be half duplex. So full duplex is data passing back and forth simultaneously. Half duplex is data in one direction and then data in the other direction. This is why yes. many times you saw, and maybe you, maybe you saw, maybe you didn't, uh, in in the days of of hubs and switches now becoming full duplex. They're all full duplex now for at least anything I've ever seen. Yeah. But but there was a period of time, maybe four or five years ago, John, maybe maybe a little longer. Um yeah, I guess we're talking late nineties, so maybe almost uh. ten years ago. Uh where, you know, hubs were oftentimes half duplex only. And so that meant uh, that, you know, when when these full duplex hubs came out, they were all marketed as, oh, we can go twice as fast as the other hubs that are out there. And really, it's kind of right if, in fact, you meant to to send data from, you know, two machines to each other simultaneously. Otherwise, it's not really twice as fast. But but it is much faster and, of course, way more efficient um at, at getting data back and forth. So, so that's, that's, uh, that's full duplex versus half duplex, but okay. Now where, oh, where do you find this info? You may ask Dave, where, oh, where, where do, do you, you find, find this, this info? info, Dave? 
you guys. All right. So I'd probably say the best place, although I looked in utilities, network utility info, it did not list the duplex. To see this, you have to go where there's a command line version. I'm not going to talk about it, though. It's, it's yeah, well, maybe I'll research it for the notes. But system preferences, network, interface, advanced, and there's an Ethernet tab. And what do you see in the Ethernet tab? But uh, a selection saying Ethernet ID, which is the MAC address, configure, and now normally it's set for automatically, which for the most part, I'd say that's what you want. And like on my G5, it says speed 1000 base T, a.k.a. Ether, uh, gigabit Ethernet, duplex, full speed, full duplex. Um, now, I could imagine in, in the case of the network drive, if you either have a substandard cable or a switch or some network device that doesn't quite grok full duplex, that setting may be half duplex. If it is, as Dave pointed out, you're, you're really knocking. It's not like half performance is probably worse because only one person can talk at a time. So you're taking a major hit with gigabit if you're on half duplex. Um, again, it's uncertain to me what, whether it be the physical cable or the router or some other network device dumbing you down to half duplex, but you do not want half duplex. Now, um, to dig into the past, though, Dave and I actually dealt with this. Uh, we, we can gloss over this, but uh, back in the modem days, we had something. So Bell 103, I think, was a... Uh, uh, but there were protocols on the modems, and, and I think the, the, the big deal was when you got the AppleCat modem. It had Bell 103, I think, which was 300 baud, Full duplex. Or 300 bits per second. Full duplex. Right. But then they had this special magical high-speed mode, which I, I believe was a Bell 202 protocol. Again, this is digging way back. And that was 1,200 baud or bits per second, and the two terms are not interchangeable. Right. We'll talk about that later. Uh, though a lot of people use them interchangeably. But what it meant is you got 1,200 bits per second in one direction. And talking a fourfold increase in transfer speeds, especially... Back then was huge. It was like wow. Hey, so the Applecat difference people, now is huge. I don't care yeah. when you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, so Dave, you and I, being the cool kids and having the Applecat modem, we right. were like rock stars because we could transfer stuff at four times the speed of other people. I, uh, I have to say that I actually never did have uh, an Applecat modem. You didn't? I thought you did. No, because oh, my my you first were not Apple, one of the cool kids. I was not. No, my first. Apple II machine that I owned or that, that my family owned was an Apple IIc, which had no real way of modifying the guts. And the Apple Cat was, of course, well, a, a card slot. Well, it had a serial it port. had oh. a serial port, but the Apple Cat was not a serial port based uh. device. It was a card slot based device. Right. Right. So that's uh, that's how it worked. Yeah. But then they had and I think uh, beyond that, again, for the folks peering into the past and then we'll move on. But I, I remember, I think it was a, oh, practical peripherals. When I got my 2400 baud modem mm -hmm. and it had a most revolutionary thing, a LCD display on the front telling you what the heck it was doing. Yes. And back then that was just too cool. I mean, the, can, the, can the, I say it was the cat's meow? <laughs> well, it wasn't an Apple cat, but no, it was I practical know. peripherals, which they were a great company. I think they've launched since disappeared from the but that was great i mean 2400 and then we went to 4899 i think it topped off where did it top off at 19257.6 man or 50 because uh, i haven't used a modem for a year modems do 50 get out mm -hmm. are you kidding me 
Yeah, but even that that was a sort of a, a single direction thing. It was you needed to have a digital circuit at the phone company. And so oh. you could and your ISP needed to be digitally connected so that there was only one length of copper cable involved. And then you could do 56K in one direction. And that was usually downstream. And then upstream was was uh, less than that. I think it was 28.8 uh, is how that worked. But uh but that gets much geekier. Well, we guess we pegged the geek meter. So, hey, you know, yeah. uh, we heard from we heard from Mitchell. Yeah, Mitchell was oh, awesome. Uh, yeah, he you had win, Dave. He had the 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 problem that we discussed in the show last week, uh, where airport disappeared, and and I said he had written in and tried a whole bunch of suggestions that that we had sent him, and none of them worked. But we sort of talked it through anyway as a troubleshooting measure. And lo and behold, I was sitting on my couch on I think it was Saturday. And, uh, and, and then maybe it was Sunday and then, uh, you were reading your Kindle. I was reading my Kindle. It was my iPhone, dude. And uh, I was, was I was reading Kindle. No, I I saw the email on my iPhone, but, uh, but John was standing right there with me and I got an email from Mitchell that he had reset his PRAM. Now he said he, uh, reset the PRAM three times and, uh, and, and that, by the third time that his problem was solved, airport was seen on the machine and all was well in the world. So I just wanted to uh, to share that because that that's sort of a that's a nice little thing to hear. Now, the interesting thing is, I think he had tried resetting the PRAM once before uh, we had recorded the show on Friday and reported. No, it, it didn't work. So interesting that, you know, perhaps there is something to this voodoo of reset it more than once in a row. You know, because, yeah, my comment was. Uh- I thought that was an urban legend, like a Mac urban legend, that you had to hold down the key combo and wait for three. Because to me, one should be enough. Who the heck knows? It is hardware. I will say, you know, PRAM, it is resetting, you know, I mean, it's what, electrostatic memory or something. But it is hardware. So there's always voodoo when it comes to computer hardware. and. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, you know, well, being a software guy, I'll agree that hardware is just total boot. It's always the problem. But um, it was interesting that his comment, because, you know, I suggested a few things which failed. But no, but 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 no, he checked his uh, I think we suggested checking system info right for a uh, airport device. And he said it, it said nothing, which right. to me is kind of shocking that a, a corruption well, maybe not too shocking. Mm-mm. But a corruption in the PRAM makes it unavailable or invisible to even a low, what I consider kind of a low-level tool that tells you, yeah, there's this hardware's here, this hardware's here. Because I've never seen system info that I can remember be wrong. No, it, it's not. It's not wrong. It reports to you what the computer it sees, what it thinks it sees. Yeah, exactly. Which, uh, but it still kind of irks me that. You know, corruption of the PRAM makes your makes that device invisible. I'm I'm just like, huh? But it worked. It is what it is. All right. Uh, again, in uh, so now we're into the uh, tips section. Christopher kind of helped us bridge the gap there with a tip and then a question. Uh, so Barrett called it. I think, it was, I think it's Barrett. So forgive me if yeah. I've misinterpreted your your name here. It's sometimes hard to tell on the on the voicemail line. Hey, John, Dave. Bear from Tonawanda, as always. Thanks for the show. I look forward to it each week. Uh, sorry if I'm about a week behind and kind of busy, but for Mackie Gab 177, you had a caller asking about large files on an undefragmented uh, volume. 
couple years ago, I started using uh, IDFrag from Corella Systems, as you had mentioned. Um, it's not really a problem for me anymore because I usually keep all my music on a second spindle as per recommendation of yours. I think it was episode 89. Anyways, um, but the one thing that I had noticed was uh, sometimes I will have to defrag uh, my center volume or that volume if it does get extremely full because as you'll know with delayed, I think delayed, delayed file allocation, I'm not sure the exact feature on Windows or Mac OS, but it waits for the next available large open spot in which to place all the files. Uh, your files aren't fragmented, but your free space is extremely fragmented. With IDFrag, I believe there's an algorithm where in which there is one that says defragment free space, or it's, it might be as a quick online. I'm not sure. You can look into it a little bit of research, but uh, it'll actually make the free space one contiguous uh, spot, which is good because I had large, like video podcasts, etc., which were too large, and they got chopped up into hundreds of fragments, whereas my smaller files were, as you said, handled uh, perfectly well by the OS. All right, again, thanks for the show. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Thanks, Barrett. Yeah, that's uh, th that's actually a very good point. A again, you know, you don't want to over-obsess about defragging, but when the drive gets to that point, and you're looking, you know, I, I know some of you wrote in and said, yeah, I do it every six months. That's the most frequently I would recommend doing it. Really, you know, I, I would say a year, maybe even two years. Again, depending, you know, we're all downloading much, much larger files now than uh, than we were. Especially, I mean, look at this podcast, right? All my drives are filled up with podcasts, you know, only because I subscribe to podcasts on different machines. And so it, it constantly is pulling these big files in and then deleting them and expiring them. And so there's this constant churn. So maybe we are heading into a realm here where defragging more frequently than than every two years, which was previously my advice would mm. uh, would would be maybe, you know, maybe it's every year. Maybe it's every six. I months say don't do it, man. I know. You know me. I'm I know you kind of conservative in that respect. <laughs> don't touch this. Um, I have one comment about what Barrett said, which uh, we talked about, but I, I thought it was kind of, uh, again, we're blast from the, he said a spindle. I've yeah. not heard that term for a hard drive. Now you may have not heard this. Maybe uh, Pete has, but, um, DASD. Have you ever heard of DASD? Not until you mentioned it tonight. No, I, <laughs> I, 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 I don't, at least I don't think I had, I mean, maybe, maybe I had read. So it's an, it's an acronym for direct access storage device. Is that right? Did mm. I get that right? Yeah. And I think, uh, I worked, uh, at my, uh, not my current job, but my prior job and also just doing internships, but I heard some old school, you know, hardcore computer types that work with mainframes and all that. Uh, they would not say hard drive. They would say DASD. Nice. So if somebody says DASD, you know they've been doing the computing thing for a while, or if they know what the heck it means. But now, of course, we've you know opened Pandora's box, and now all you listeners can you know toss around the term DASD and sound like the cool kids at the party. And, uh, and that's what that's what we're here for. <laughs> that's why we do what we do. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Uh, I'm still waiting for the optical, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, laser optical 3D drives, which uh, yeah. for, for some reason we're still in the rut of magnetic technology for the most part. Though we do have, I'm sorry, well, you know, the MacBook Air has the uh, solid state. So, yeah. uh, But I think uh, for a good long time, magnetic drives like my one terabyte monster, as I call it, now they're up to 1.5, right? Yeah, that's right. 
That's right. I've seen that, and it'll. Uh, but uh, whoever thought we'd say terabyte? <laughs> you know, I knew we would at some point. I, I guess yeah, it always it always comes sooner than you expect. It's like, oh yeah, here we are. You know, when we hit gigabyte, it was like, oh yeah, look at that. Now we're tossing this yep. around and Terra. And I think uh, for for those that want to prepare, I I believe after Terra is Peta. That's right. Start getting your uh, get your stuff ready. Go go and register all your domains. Right, Peta Petabyte. Is that what it would be? Petabyte drives for sale. Now, yeah. uh, are the PETA people gonna 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 come in and and speak <laughs> out against that too? Never mind. Uh, no, I, they'll I, just spray paint you red. Or that's something. right. You'll spray paint your uh, gigabit drive red. Uh, <laughs> so Matt writes: For the person looking to encrypt a set of files or folders, why not look at TrueCrypt.org? Open sourced and cross platform, an excellent way to protect USB drives as well. So that's in in response to a comment uh, a listener from a previous show looking for a way to encrypt a set or a subset of files and not go the whole nine yards with uh, with encrypting everything with file vault and everything. So TrueCrypt to TrueCrypt dot org. Thank you, Matt. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Terry writes. Oh, Terry. This is- Good. This oh, is a good one. Good. This, this is, is so be good. good. I think this is going to be good. Yeah. I got to see where we are here because this is going to be a good long conversation. You know what? I am going to tell you about our second sponsor. Yes, for, please. Yes. For this week. And that is Circus Ponies with Notebook 3.0. Notebook is an electronic notebook application. Just what you would think it would was. Uh, and of course, it starts off that way. You get into Notebook and you can type things into the notebook and it will organize them in a Nice hierarchy for you, kind of a an outline, but it goes so much further than that. You can create different notebooks for each project, and inside each one, in addition to typing, you can do diagramming, sketching. You can pull in PDFs into a notebook. You can annotate right on those PDFs. You can sketch. You can diagram right there, and it's even got handwriting recognition built in, so if you're entering data on a tablet uh, or even with your mouse, if you are so inclined uh, writing with the mouse, it would actually pull that in too. So it's a, it's a, a notebook, but also a note organizer and it's got all sorts of different searching uh, and, and you can really kind of pull things together. Pete, I know you and, uh, and, and your son actually both use notebook. Right. right. My son's far more into it uh, even now than, than uh, I thought he would be. He, uh, but he has, I guess, four major subjects in school now that he's keeping organized. And that's awesome. Going, oh, it's it's a beautiful thing. That's awesome. His grades don't reflect it, but <laughs> well, <laughs> notebook is available from CircusPonies.com, and the suggested retail retail price is forty nine ninety five. It is twenty nine ninety five for academic users, and and it's very much targeted to that crowd. So you know, definitely use that pricing if it makes sense for you. And ninety nine ninety five for a three user family pack. Uh, this month, and I'm pulling up my notes here because I don't want to get this wrong. This month, so starting December first and going through December twenty fourth, so through Christmas Eve. Uh, you can get 20% off the standard or the three user family pack license for notebook by using the coupon code geek gab G E E K G A B all caps is how it was presented to me. I don't know if it needs to be all caps or not uh, in the store. So try it that way. All caps 20% off. So go ahead and download the free trial from circusponies.com. Check it out. You've got a little bit of time, even if you've downloaded this show a week late, uh, 
you know, go go ahead and go through that and uh, and twenty percent off. And Pete's waving waving his arms here. So just one more thing I want to add. Yeah. It's you know when you first call it up, it looks like a spiral bound notebook. You can go to different inner uh, faces on uh, different skins on it to a little bit, if you will. But it, it's also a beautifully Mac smooth. It just and it's intuitive. It works. That's nice. Cool. All right. Notebook at circusponies.com. Again, 20% off with the coupon code GeekGab. And now, John, we will play. No, we won't play because I have it right in front of me here. I have to read it. Uh-huh. Terry writes, <laughs> and this is in response to Keith's SSL issue, uh, his secure issue. He was trying to access a secure site from work and it wouldn't work. Uh, but it would from home. Same computer, same everything. We said blame the firewall. Actually, we said beat the IT guy, I think is what uh, uh-huh. what we said. But anyway, uh, so Terry writes in in response to that. I'm an IT director and John was right. You should beat the IT person. Just kidding. <laughs> I ran into the, I ran into this same issue with SSL about four months ago. And here was the solution I found. Now, I don't have any Mac OS 10 on my network or even own a Mac. But since the issue was clearly not a Mac issue, the issue is, for him anyway, the new EV SSL certificates require a larger header length than the old SSL. EV SSL is those ones that appear in green on your IE Firefox or new Safari address bar. The firewall worked fine with the original settings of a maximum header length of 1200 bytes for HTTP policies before the new EV SSL certificates were released. Now that sites are starting to use this new EV SSL certificates, the maximum headers length must be set to 64,000 bytes for HTTP policies. That's up from 1,200. As regarding to setting up a VPN to get out of the network, some companies do block outgoing VPN traffic. I would think that since they are blocking IM traffic, the outgoing VPN might also be blocked. All right. Thank you very, very much, Terry. This was very, very helpful uh, and and massively geeky, but but awesome, because I, I never I, I certainly didn't know this. And uh, the only thing is now and I'll, I'll step in if you don't mind. Go. We have to decipher what the heck was he saying? That's right. <laughs> yes. Because we, we had a little acronym overload here. So I'm going to dig in a bit to okay. explain what he was talking about so a certificate we will not go into the depths but suffice to say a certificate is something that a site will get um will add to their web server and if you do an https colon slash slash connection if you connect to a secure site you will see a lock in the upper right hand corner of your browser like safari or firefox or whatever you'll see a lock somewhere right we've all seen it it And basically what that says to you is that the content that is communicated between you and that site is not, will mean nothing to prying eyes who may, which that's a whole other thing, may see that traffic. Like probably I think the worst case would be if you're in a wireless environment, people may see that traffic. But suffice to say, HTTPS guarantees that your traffic is scrambled and not easily decoded. Now, what he's talking about is, so a certificate is basically a piece of data. It has some cartography included. We're not going to go into the details because that would take another show or two or three or four. But they, the industry has come up with a different type of certificate. Now, the, the at the computer level, the difference is that 
the size of the data is different. Now, the, well, there are two things. One is now they have something called an EV certificate, extended validation. Um, VeriSign, who is probably the most famous issuer of certificates and other people, including Microsoft, have promoted an extended validation certificate as being a good thing. And I, I would tend to agree it is a good thing with reservations. So if you are running a browser that understands what a EV cert is, it will make that apparent in the display that you see in your browser. IE7 was probably one of the, uh, and I hate to say this, no, I don't, I'm kidding. Um, IE7 was probably one of the first browsers that made it readily apparent you were connecting to a site that had an extended validation certificate. Um, Safari has recently done this, and you will know this because if you look in your browser, in the upper right-hand corner, if the site, like VeriSign, is one of them, you can try it, you will see green text identifying the company who certified the uh, site. Now, here's the problem I have. So, Actually, in, in Safari, I'll, I'll interrupt there. In Safari, I see Go. not the name of the certificate authority, but the name of the company, like well, the name I, of the site. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Yes. So no, if I if I go to log into Vonage, I see Vonage Holdings Inc. or or whatever it is in the okay. in the bar there. So anyway, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Okay. So what is an EV certificate? An EV or extended validation certificate is where the person that issues the certificate will go through additional. And here's my problem additional protocols to make sure you are the person who is authorized to request that certificate. Because basically, if I go to a site like VeriSign or anybody who has a certificate, they claim they are who they say they are. I trust them. Uh, my, my issue is, why do you even need this extended EV cert? It, it almost implies to me, help me out, Dave, and we can have a chat about this, but... Yep. It, it almost implies to me that sites that are not EV are not entirely trustworthy, which leads me to believe that the practices that are used to issue these normal certs that are associated with most of the sites that we use are not entirely trustworthy. That really bothers me. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it it it's or we could say that the people using EV certs have gone the extra mile to prove that they are as trustworthy as trustworthy trustworthy as we thought they were, right? Um, of course, of course, these certs haven't really caught on yet either. I mean, there's there's some companies that are using them, but I don't even think my bank uses them, right? Yeah. No, and I I I just noticed that in a random, you know, I was surfing, and I'm like, wow, Safari's doing something. And as far as I know, this is a very recent addition to Safari in the, the where yeah, we at now. I think it's 3.2 added it. Three, up to three, two, two, one three, two. Yeah. So three, two, because uh, again, I, I went to Verisign for a reason and I'm like, huh, look at that. My browser is different. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, is the, uh, so number one, as pointed out earlier, the EV certs, are different in a in that they're larger and they may and, and, and actually I like this but I love our users <laughs> and our followers our listeners whatever because this is a, a, a thing I had not even thought of is that the, the certificate is too big or 
if you have a firewall that says, like we were talking, a stateful firewall, which kind of figures into this, but if the firewall says, whoa, look at this certificate. This is huge. This is not what I expect. It'll just bag the connection. Right. So I, I, really I bet that's think, it. I bet you're right. I bet I, it was a stateful I, firewall that did it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't think it has to be stateful, but it just has to uh, know what to expect. So if a cer- certificate, which is a blob of data for the most part, is too big, it may correctly say, you know, I think somebody's trying to hack me or trying to throw me off the... Somebody's trying to do something weird because this data is way bigger than I expect. So I'm right. just going to give up and just bring you back to the prior state. So I, I'm going to say that this is probably what was happening in the case where the there, there was a redirection back to the login page. Well, you know, I'll qualify that. It was the Apple page, and I haven't yet tried the Apple developer page. If Apple developer page is using an extended cert, which I do not know if they are, then this is why that's happening. If not, then I don't, know. I don't yeah, I'll have to, let me, let me try and log in. I just, while you were uh, yeah, I'll try to. explaining that there, no, I, I, I went and checked with every bank I do business with. So Citibank, yeah. Bank of America, uh, American Express, and I don't, well, actually I didn't check mm. American Express, but I don't think Amex has it either. I couldn't find a single bank that used the extended certificate. Um, yeah, they, the only person I found, as I mentioned, was Verisign. Okay, and, and I found Vonage. They do because they sell them. Right, of course. Which they is do. good. And right. Verisign is probably one of the better. I, I've worked with them in the past, and they're probably one of the better CAs, uh, CERT authorities out there. Expression Engine. Uh, sorry, I'm saying Expression Engine because I have that up in front of me. Huh? Um, <laughs> uh, the developer connection. It sounds the same. I can see that my head's in a jillion places tonight. Uh, developer connection from Apple does not use an extended CERT yet. So, No. Yeah, and I would imagine too. give it, you know, give it 12 to 18 months. And as people renew their certs, they're going to be, you know, going and upgrading to these uh, to these extended ones. But uh, but we're not there yet. But again, it it, it, it worries me, Dave, because it, it again implies and I, I, I really do not think the cert industry thought this through because they're kind of saying, well, yeah. the thing we did before. Yeah, that's not that great. Yeah, Don't it does. It, it sends trust the new message. thing. And, yeah. But but the new thing, the thing is, uh, uh, again, I would say, uh, you know, between other than me and you and the listeners, most people have no freaking clue what no. an extended cert is and what that green thing in their browser means other than it looks nice. It, it looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It looks cool. So... I think it's time to bring the band in. Is the band? Job. Are they banging on the doors? Yeah. Well, what's your... Uh, what, what, oh, man. Oh, it was terrible. Coming back, Dave? Yeah. Well, it wasn't that terrible. Okay, so I was good. driving back. So, number one, I noticed I got way awesome gas mileage. Probably oh, because of highway driving. Sure. Or I put a uh, better gas in. Oh, but, um, there you go. Man, but no, on the on the way back, so so two things. One, on the way back, I hit some uh, freezing rain in Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. And it's there awesome. was the Mass Pike toll. <sighs> Tolls are I, I just want to, I, I want to get a tank. I want the tank in my Garmin, and I want to run over the Mass Pike toll. As, Guys, as a resident, you know. As it, a resident of a, uh, of a toll charging state that oh, also nice sees, work, man. sees a lot. Connecticut doesn't do that, yo. Uh, Connecticut doesn't get the tourist traffic that, uh, that we get uh, here. We get a little bit. Come on, yeah, we got the people that want to visit New York the City. Same. They stay here. Uh-huh. 
Uh, yeah, but no, you guys have a lot of things. Well, we have a lot of pass-through traffic too, right? You'll have people going from Massachusetts to Maine that otherwise would not spend any money here in New Hampshire. Right, right. So we get their money when they pass through the Hampton tolls, and that's so uh, it was like oh, must have been half an hour because I was in the cash lane. But you pointed out Easy Pass, man. You got to get Easy Pass. No question. Just yeah. to visit, just for you. Dan. Just for, there you go. You'll, you'll appreciate it when you go to New York. You know, uh, if you have to go yeah, park the at the if you have to go park at too. the airport, though, you can use Easy Pass to pay for your parking. I, you know what? I like Bradley. Bradley, you know, oh, yeah. I'm Connecticut, man. All right, there you go. But if you ever have to go pick somebody up, uh, contact info. You want to know how to contact us? I ho- at least I hope you do. We want you to know how to, really? how to contact us. Yeah, I do. I so, have the answer. What's the answer, John? <laughs> the answer is feedback at macgeekgab.com. Or is it one of the answers? That is one of the answers. So you can visit macgeekgab.com, and that'll re- always redirect you to the right page at TMO, uh, regardless of what publishing system we're on, to, mm. uh, to get to the, the podcast show notes and all that good stuff. You can also call in with your audio comments at 206. Yep, while you're driving. All right. 206. With one hand on the wheel. Yeah, now, is it Go. considered having a conversation on the cell phone if all you're doing is leaving a voicemail for us? Does that does that break the law? <laughs> anyway, 206-666-GEEK, which, John, is? 4335. Excellent. And, of course, we love the iTunes comments. Love them comments. They are a beautiful thing. And you can Skype to MacGeekGab. Oh, oh, and Pete. All right. Twitter. All right. Yeah, we'll, we'll find. So uh, Twitter. Let's see. You've got three of us on Twitter. Since Pete mentioned it, he goes first. It's Twitter.com slash Pilot Pete. That's right. John, you are Twitter.com slash John F. Braun. And yes, I will. I, I'm on there daily. Awesome. I would say. So I cannot guarantee. But if you have a offbeat Mac question, I will do what I can. And I'm, I'm Twitter.com slash Dave Hamilton. I will be away next week, so John and I will Where not... Are you go- are, what, are you going to Disney? Yes, in fact, we are. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about it. Dude, it's still... Oh, I'm looking forward uh, to it. It should be a blast. It is so much fun. Yeah. Uh, like I said, you're doing Orlando, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, I did want to mention one thing. We are expanding our 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 staff at the at our dealsontheweb.com site. And we're looking for a full-time person to kind of help manage the deals there and manage some of our affiliate relationships and and really just kind of take the charge of of what uh, my business partner there, Shannon, uh, Gene, and and I have been doing. So uh, if you uh, are interested in this, we can send more information to you. But if anybody's interested, send a a note through to resumes, R-E-S-U-M-E-S, at dealsontheweb.com. And uh, and we'll get back to you with some details about exactly what we're looking for and nice. and what we're looking to pay. But uh, but yeah, we're 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 making some moves over there, and, and I'm I'm really excited actually about what we're doing. So cool, love to tell you about it. Um, all right, MacWorld Expo, January fifth oh. through 9th. It's going to be here sooner than you think, folks. It's coming right around the corner, so we will see you there iPhone Alley is Michael Johnston's home when he's not here. Converting the podcast at iPhoneAlley.com and Cashfly at Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth for the podcast. The podcast marketplace this month includes the A5 and A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebones Software, Disc Label from Smile on My Mac, 
notebook from Circus Ponies with the coupon code GeekGab, and audiblepodcast.com slash MacGeekGab for your two-week free trial and free book at audible.com. All through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. And folks, we are out of here. I think we, we will publish a show next week, John. I think I'm going to do an interview with uh-huh. uh, Paul Kent of IDG tomorrow, and we'll throw oh, that. Oh, awesome. I'll throw that oh, in the we feed got, for we next got, week. We got so. questions. We do. You have questions for Paul? You got you got 24, less than 24 hours to get them into me if, uh, if you haven't sent them already. Twitter them to me. Twitter.com slash Dave Hamilton. See you when I'm back from vacation. And while I'm gone, be good. Yeah. And don't get caught. May not.